Blocky. You are listening to Our First Fears, a podcast about gateway horror, past and present, with artists working in the genre today. Today's guest is the all-around gem of a human, award-winning, number one New York Times best-selling author, Libba Bray. I've known Libba for well over a decade now, and every time I'm lucky enough to speak with her, I end up feeling giddy and slightly dizzy. Which may or may not sound like a good thing, but I assure you, it is. And she is. Good, that is. I feel incredibly lucky to know her, and I feel unbelievably lucky that she agreed to talk about her fears and one classic horror film with me here today. Libba is the creator of many books for young adults, including A Great and Terrible Beauty and the rest of the Gemma Doyle trilogy, as well as Beauty Queens, The Diviner's Quartet, and the American Library Association's Prince Award-winning Going Bovine, which is a madcap retelling of Don Quixote from the perspective of a teen boy suffering from the human variant of mad cow disease as he escapes from his hospital bed and goes on a road trip across America to find a cure. Along the way, he fights giant fire monsters, wizards, and a particularly creepy American cult that worships happiness. I know, it's wild, and it's as gobsmackingly funny as it is heart-shattering. The fear that Libba brought to the table for this conversation comes from Rosemary's Baby, the 1968 film by Roman Polanski based on Ira Levin's novel about, spoilers, a newly married couple's run-in with a coven of Satanists while living in a grand old apartment building on New York City's Central Park West. The movie stars Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, and Sidney Blackmer. I won't say much more about where we go with this, except that the film is a remarkable and horrifying artifact of how history continues to repeat itself. Before we get into it, if you're listening with kids to this one, you might want to use discretion. Now, turn down the lights, turn up the volume, and get ready to explore our first fears. Hi, Libba Bray! Hello, Tampa Blocky. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm good. I'm so happy that you've decided to come and talk about your first fears with me today. Ugh, I love to talk about my fears. I usually <laughs> have to pay $200 a week for that, but it's nice that you're letting me do it for free. Thanks. That's what I'm here for. Um, <laughs> So for those listeners who, and I don't know who they could be, but who aren't quite familiar with your work, can you- How dare I know. How dare you? How Listeners, dare. get on board. This is the legend, Libba Bray, <laughs> um, who I have to say, I, I discovered your first book. Um, I don't know if it was your first book, but it was your first book book, um, A Great and Terrible Beauty, when I first moved to New York City. And I didn't know you at the time. And I read it. And I just was like, whoa, this imagination, this storytelling, I love it. I love it. So when I got to meet you, I kind of was speechless. And I kind of just 
fudged the bed. You know, I didn't, I don't think I said a word to you. <laughs> that's actually, that's the, that's the blurb, the cover blurb I've been looking for. I read this, I met her, I fudged the bed. That, thank you, Dan. My work here on earth is complete. I don't know if I'm going to get through thank this you, darling. interview with you. Okay. So can you, can you tell our listeners, um, about fudging the bed. <laughs> about fudging I'm the bed. Sure, I could. <laughs> Can you tell me about? <laughs> if you ever, if you ever said no, I can have one more vodka, and the next morning you find out, no, no, that was, I can't. This was a bad idea. Now I'm realizing this is going to be difficult. (laughs) Give it to them fully, Dan. Like, let's just have the full experience. Speaking of horror, strap the fuck in, people. (laughs) Libba, can you tell our listeners what your relationship to the horror genre was, is, and might be in the future? Oh, my God. Um... I am an absolute horror nut. It is my it is my beloved. It is my genre of choice. Um, and I, God, I fell in love with horror early on. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm tempted to say that my the first horror stories that I ever remember were Bible stories because you know when when there's some kind of like you know elder god who can turn people to pillars of salt or mm-hmm. says to Abraham like. <laughs> Sacrifice your son for me. <laughs> just, just kidding. Just, funsy. just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, that's terrifying when you're a kid. But the, the first horror I remember falling in love with was Hammer Horror. Mm-hmm. And um, for those who are not familiar with Hammer Horror, Hammer was a, a, a studio in England. And, uh, and I think they even, they filmed at, might even filmed at Bray Studios, which of course made me feel that I was invested. Of course. And, but they were these wonderfully anachronistic um, movies in which they, you know, it would be like like a retelling of Dracula. There'd be 14 different retellings of Dracula, you know, like Dracula goes to the supermarket, Dracula's axe under his bed. And <laughs> but it was, you know, they'd be set in like, you know, the 1800s, but the women would all look like they just came off of Carnaby Street. They'd mm-hmm. have beehives mm-hmm. and like, you know winged eyeliner so they were glamorous super glam. and so it was this yeah it was this mix of of horror and sexuality and sensuality and um even you know even five-year-old me was like oh hey yeah. i am i'm into this um you it, know in it, fashion. Intri- it intrigued you yeah it I, did I, it intrigued I me and terrified me and thrilled me i mean and between that and i used to get horror comics when we would go like to you know to the Woolworths or something like that, you know, I'd be able to pick up these horror comics and I would read them. And I'm sure my mother had no idea the the lurid stuff that was in there. And um, I, of course, was like enchanted. Oh, wow. Look at that. Beheadings. Were you talking Um, about like the EC comics, like Tales from the Crypt and yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it was like, yeah, EC, maybe even creepy. Mm -hmm. It was so long ago. Yeah. The one that, for some reason, really sticks with me was there was one about um, with Visigoths, because first of all, the name alone sounded like a monster to me, you know, and that the, you know, the Visigoths were invading and there was something about like, you know, a monster and beheadings and some kind of curse. And so in a way, it combined everything that I love, both of those things, Hammer Horror and, and, and that comic, it's, it's like it's history 
and it's, uh, and it's, you know, bloody and it's scary and then there's curses and, and there's also, um, repressed sexuality mm-hmm. and, and not so repressed sexuality. Oh, so yeah. all of that stuff was, uh, was catnip to me. Same. I was I, a strange I, child. <laughs> oh, I can't relate. <laughs> I remember going into the Walden's books in the mall when I was a kid and, I don't know why my parents bought these for me, but they were the reissue of the EC comics. There were Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, and there was a third one, um, something of fear. And and there were those were the comics that were banned in the fifties um, by the government, um, forcing that that publisher to create Mad Magazine, which was fascinating to me um yes yeah so we're gonna get into we're gonna get into all of the the sexiness the glamour the horror the you know all of that stuff that comes when we talk about the uh the the movie that you chose today rosemary's baby but i wanted to first ask you which i'm asking everybody um Mm -hmm. I should say I'm asking my guests, not just everybody on the street, because that would be weird if I were to say. I would love it if that were happening. If I were to say, do you remember the first time feeling afraid? First time feeling afraid. I mean, I'm sure there were lots of times that I felt afraid, but for some reason, the, the thing that really comes to me is that I had watched, and I think I was maybe like eight, eight or nine. So I was right on the cusp of puberty, you know, like in getting there. And I had watched one of those Hammer Horror movies. It was a Dracula with Christopher Lee. Oh, yeah. And he was such a sexy beast. I mean, I was just like, oh, you know, and I found myself you know, really thinking about Christopher Lee. And I think that that night as I was lying in bed, I'm sure this was some kind of, you know, uh, the beginning of some kind of Freudian thing. Um, but I, I remember thinking about Christopher Lee and then all of a sudden I got scared because I thought, what if Dracula comes and bites my neck? Metaphor. And <laughs> I remember like pulling the covers all the way up, you know, to my ears basically and being, you know, absolutely terrified that this could, that this could happen, like watching my door and it was partially open. And I just thought, Oh God, you know, Dracula is going to come and he's going to bite my neck and I, I got to be on guard. Um, so, I mean, I think there's so many levels to that psychologically, <clears throat> but, um, and, but yeah, and where it took, where it t- like took root and like how it, you know, affected you later on. Yeah. I, know, I know you're also a big fan of, or, or were a big fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes, um, indeed. did you like, <clears throat> do you, do you, do you think like vampires, do you think that Christopher Lee moment and that fear sort of like lingered throughout, you know? Uh, you're you're growing up and becoming the the artist and the writer that you are now. Uh, that's a really interesting question, and I do think that I've had a lifelong fascination with vampires. I mean, the project that I am working on now and have been working on for the past like <clears throat> three years 
is uh, is a musical called the Vampire Movie Musical exclamation mark oh which is like a it's, it's like a, a love letter to Rocky Horror and Phantom of the Paradise and the Midnight Movie because awesome. you know, the Midnight Movie was such a huge part of my life as well and I think that because vampires are metaphor for so many different uh, social anxieties, you know, uh, it's, it's everything from our sexual anxieties to, um, you know, in some ways, metaphors for runaway greed and late stage capitalism. You mm. know, so I, I feel like vampires are great stand-ins and they're sexy uh, in a way. So that you know that they rely on seduction that you have to invite them in. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they're very manipulative in that way. And I, I find all of that um, fascinating for the interplay between uh, between the vampires and the humans, you know, because there's got to be some part of you that that is also attracted to that, you know. And um, oh, yeah. so, yeah, I'm 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 very interested, whereas I also was very um, I remember seeing the Wolfman with Lon Chaney. And for some reason, werewolves for me made me sad. You know, mm. I just, I remember feeling heartbroken for Lon Chaney. Like he was so tortured. Uh, he, he didn't want to transform into this this beast, you know. And I, I just remember, and of course I was such an animal lover too, that I was like, oh, poor werewolf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come, I will feed you kibble. Oh, <laughs> the kibble you, you prefer is, is, you know, like a severed hand. Oh, dear, that, they were out of that at the Winn-Dixie. Yeah. Um, it's like if you... Um... If, if horror makers want to up the ante or like create anxiety, all you have to do is, is put a dog, <laughs> put an animal yeah, exactly. in every scene. And then, you know, like for people like you and I, we just gonna, we're just going to worry about them. So to mix, <laughs> to mix a human and a dog or a wolf, you know, exactly. absolutely. <laughs> I can oh, see puppy. how that would be effective. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I think also the fact that uh, thinking about vampires again is the fact that they live forever, uh, and that seems that actually also seems you know existential and uh, like like a, a very long French New Wave film, <laughs> you know? Yes, <laughs> yeah, thinking. it's just another day. Smoke a cigarette; it doesn't matter. You can smoke the whole pack. I'm thinking of those of those new wave movies in a whole new way now. I'm just like imagining them all just, you know, right? hanging around, uh, running through Truffaut museums. Truffaut just needs to throw in, you know, just needs in to throw in a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> I would 100% watch that. Yes. I would so 100% how... watch a French new wave vampire film. I guess the hunger feels oh. sort of close. But... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a favorite too. Um, Bowie, hello, Deneuve, oh, Sarandon. Oh. How, like, it was like a, a moment in time. It was. So how do we get from vampires to Satanists? Satan. <laughs> what, what, made you, what made you choose Rosemary's Baby as a topic of um, one of your first fears? Something to, to chat about. Well, Rosemary's Baby is not just... Um, it's my favorite horror movie, but it's one of my favorite movies, period. And 
uh, for so many reasons. I mean, I, I and I feel like I could talk about that in conjunction, speaking of Ira Levin, also with the Stepford Wives and even Midsummer, because they're all in a way uh, feminist horror. And especially, I just rewatched Rosemary's Baby. Um, and to watch it at this particular moment in time, after the Dobbs decision, as we're seeing uh, our reproductive rights just being absolutely torn away and uh, this oppression of women, it is fascinating and galling to watch this movie and to, to think about um, to think about the horror of, uh, of not having autonomy over your body, which is now an actual thing. You know, that, that's that's really happening. Um, and I think, you know, I've always been fascinated by I grew up, I, you know, I was a child in the 70s when when uh, satanic movies were having their moment. And I think maybe also having been raised in the church, although, you know, my my parents were uh, intellectual Presbyterians who would say things like, you know, well, transubstantiation is really just symbolism. You know, it's not the actual body and blood. And um, wow. so, you know, it was, that and, was and, not like, my experience growing up in the Catholic <laughs> church. I was told this is actual flesh. This is this, actual yeah. blood. And I was like, this is, there was this a is disconnect. A wafer. There was a disconnect there for me. And let me, let me say, um, let me preface this with, if there's any listeners out there who are, religious or spiritual or whatever, please understand. I'm not trying to take anything away from you. I'm sure I don't want to speak for Libba, but like Libba might be trying to take something away from you. But, <laughs> I'm definitely not. I'm definitely but, not. But, but um, yeah, my experience of, of coming away from the Catholic church was definitely uh, st- stuff like that where I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't mesh it together in my head. And so it's fascinating that you, Maybe I would have had an easier time if I had parents or a pastor who said, this is a metaphor and the metaphor is beautiful. Well, you know, I mean, in many ways, I was I was lucky because, you know, my father was a minister. My mother was an English teacher. And so metaphor and symbolism were everywhere, which was, uh, you know, great when you wanted to talk about things like um, religion or or, or literature, but not so helpful when you want to make toast. Like I've explained to this, I've explained onomatopoeia and also man versus nature to this bread, and yet it still remains bread. I don't understand why doesn't it? Why doesn't it communicate? The secret um, is heat. <laughs> oh, but I, I think yeah. So like the, to me, the idea, especially as a as a horror fan and kind of. In upping the ante, so to speak, was like, well, you might be able to, you know, outrun a serial killer or outwit, a, a, you know, or throw garlic at a, and a crucifix at a vampire or silver bullet for a werewolf. But how do you defeat the big D, man? You know, it's like, <laughs> game over, man, to quote Bill Paxton. Exactly. <laughs> you know, the big it, D. <laughs> so that to me was like, oh, yeah, that's really scary. Yeah. But I think also that that sense of conspiracy and paranoia mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the fact that it takes place in New York City, mm -hmm. because so much horror would take place in isolated places where I think, yeah, I would never go to that cabin in the woods. P.S. That's a big nope. You're, you're touching but, on you're touching on all of the things that I made little notes about. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, for before we go any further, can yeah. for, just for, in case anybody is listening and they have they don't know what Rosemary's Baby is. So, um, You've so, had fifty five years, people. Nineteen sixty eight film based on a nineteen sixty seven novel by Ira Levin. Can you just give a brief synopsis of what what it is we're talking about here? Yes, absolutely. So Rosemary and Guy Woodhouse are a young married couple, and they take a, uh, an apartment in the Bramford, which, by the way, is the Dakota building uh, at 72nd in New York uh, and, and Central Park mm -hmm. West in New York City, which is also where John Lennon was shot. Mm -hmm. And so they, they take this apartment um, and... Then they are, and I'm sorry, these are spoilers. Again, spoilers. we've had 55 years, <laughs> but I want to give a full, like, check out now if you don't want to know this. But they become involved with their next-door neighbors, um, uh, Minnie and Roman Castavet, this older couple. Uh, Minnie is played memorably by Ruth Gordon, who I love so much. And, um, and they are slowly drawn into... Um, really, that, that these older people, all these older people in the building, are a coven of, of Satanists. And they have decided that it's time to impregnate someone and bring the Antichrist into the world and enter Rosemary, who is, you know, ready for that, ripe and ready for that, uh, to have a baby, not to be, you know, she's unwittingly uh, pulled into this. Again, yes, she's no consent. Yes. Yeah. And, and no autonomy over her body. And um, her husband is the one who makes the deal with the devil, so to speak, because he's an actor who has yet to find fame. And they promise him, yeah, it's a Faustian bargain. They, they promise him fame and fortune and everything if they'll just, if he'll just, you know, let them use his wife's womb to bring the Antichrist into the world. But so much of the movie is about... Um, Rosemary and her body and the way that she is um, treated like a little girl in oh, many ways oh, by very all childlike. of these people. Yeah. I mean, even the costumes, the, I was looking at the costumes and going, well, that's brilliant because she's often in yellow and white, which we think of as like like little girl colors a lot of times they're the and same the colors they're the same colors that she chooses for her baby clothes the wallpaper and the yes. wallpaper yeah yes and and also which made me think about the yellow wallpaper which is mm. the kate uh kate chopin you know um the awakening which is another feminist horror story yeah and um but all the dresses, and I know that, that baby doll dresses were sort of uh, a, a trend at the time, but they're all baby doll dresses that she's in. They make her, she's in pigtails at one point. Meanwhile, when you see her amongst, the one scene when you see her amongst her contemporaries, her girlfriends, they all look like women, you know, like they, they are dressed as grown women with, you know, they're, they've, you know, they, they are fully inhabiting themselves. So that to me was fascinating. And also the way that all the men 
talk about Rosemary to each other. Even her friend Hutch, who comes over, who's concerned about her appearance because she's not looking so good now that she's got the baby, you know, gestating the baby of Satan. Yeah, and she's Um, she's, she's wan and pale and in pain. Yeah, and everyone disregards her pain the same mm-hmm. way that the medical establishment has a long history of disregarding women's pain, saying it's all in their heads, it's just stress. Here's a pill, you need to rest. This you know, was and- it was something I noticed during the party that she the scene where she throws a party for for her young friends rather than the elderly neighbors who've sort of taken yes. over their social life. And her her friends, the women in the kitchen, they lock out her husband. They're like, no, yep. we're going to deal with this. We're going to talk about your doctor. Your doctor's ignoring your pain. You've got to find somebody else. I was super impressed. First of all, that a man um, wrote that scene into yes. the novel. And then and then that, that Polanski, who is famously problematic... Um, mm-hmm was able to sort of portray that moment in such an authentic way. Yes. And Polanski is problematic, but Polanski also survived the Holocaust. Yes. And so the idea of someone trying to gaslight you and say, oh, this is not a problem Mm. when you're everybody, when there are certain people who are like, no, this is a problem. Um, You know, I think that it feels like that. I could see how that could also you could have some sensitivity to that. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and, but, but yes, I, 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 you know, and when you think about the fact that Ira Levin also wrote the Stepford wives, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he which, was, he was on, he was on some theme there with, with men, husbands in particular, gaslighting and being kind of, you know, not kind of, but like, <laughs> psychotically abusive to spouses and almost, you know, in, in a way, spoiler alert for Stepford wives, murderous. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, that thinking about that scene at the, at the end when Rosemary finally comes in and sees the baby and guy says to her, you know, they promised me you wouldn't be hurt and you haven't been really. And we're getting so much and I, I, I wanted to stand up and cheer when she spits in she his face. Spits in his face. Spits in his face, you know. And it's, but it's also, you know, you think about um, listening to senators on Capitol Hill saying, like, well, it's not that bad, you know. So, so you were raped and you're pregnant now. But, like, you know, just have the baby. You can give it up for adoption. I mean, it's just, I would classify Rosemary's baby in many ways as body horror. Oh, sure. Because, you know, I mean, when she talks about how it feels, the pain feels like a wire tightening inside of me, just the, the agony and, and the fact that, um, that yes, that it's completely disregarded um, and poo-pooed. And I think you know, about that. I think about the scene also just after the coven of Satanists um, drugs. Well, well, uh, Rosemary's husband got guy. Guy. His name Isn't is Guy. Guy. <laughs> oh my god, I I just know. put that together. <laughs> okay, Guy. Guy. <clears throat> um, guy. So Guy arranges. I guess Dick was already taken. <laughs> Probably. The scene after 
she is drugged and then visited by Mr. Satan himself, you know, where, where they, where he rapes her. Yeah. And she wakes up the next morning and she's like, what happened? What like, and she's covered in scratches. And she asks him like, what, what is this? And he was like, well, you know, I didn't want to miss baby night. Yes. She's like, so <gasps> you had sex with me anyway? And he was like, well, yeah. I was like, this yeah. guy is, this guy's bad news. <laughs> it's bad news. Yeah, it was Rose fun Mary. in a necrophile sort of way. Oh my God. Without, without question, he is the true villain of the piece. Yeah. And the condemnation, to me, the condemnation of this sort of traditional, this marriage, really. <laughs> it's, it's, um, the, it's not so good for women a lot of times. And that, that, that scene is so chilling to me. And John Cassavetes is the perfect actor for it because he's just got that, he's got a little bit of roguish charm to him. He's funny in a caustic way. And he's, the way that he just sort of um, tries to play it off, and, and also the way that Rosemary consistently says when he says, what's wrong? Nothing. Because women are trained to, to not, not to be angry, to, to think that nothing's wrong, or to say that nothing's wrong, and to make everything okay. And the lengths to which Rosemary goes to try to make everything seem okay uh, to make Guy seem okay, even though we can see that she has these moments of doubts that he's, you know, not paying attention to her or that he's not so nice to her. And she just kind of is able to kind of um, push it aside. Well, and what I think I, that yeah. what, I, what I saw her doing in those moments was becoming childish, childlike. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, it's a tactic I still see people do today to survive things that yes. are that are difficult she she doesn't want to eat the the poison the the drugged moose that her yeah. neighbor made which she says has a chalky undertaste. chalky undertaste and he's like just eat it just eat it and she's like okay well you go flip over the record and then she dumps the rest of the moose onto her lap into her napkin and he comes over and she's like she calls him daddy she calls him daddy. Yeah. Do I get a gold star, daddy? I see. Yeah. I finished it, daddy. And right. like clearly it's not, that's not her, you know, being in, infantilizing. She is using that as a tactic to get out of a situation which she knows yes. could be dangerous. And I think it's fascinating that as the movie goes on, she becomes more and more childlike. Um, until the until the end, until she starts to catch on in that that, yes. that moment where she does spit in his face, I'm like, she she grew up, <laughs> well, or, or she's she's put aside the veneer of of innocent, fragile Rosemary who you know can't take care of herself, and that if she just plays along with the patriarchy, the patriarchy will take care of her. Mm -hmm. She just has to play along. And she suddenly realized, oh, no, these rules weren't, weren't written to protect me. I have to protect myself mm -hmm. and my child. And, you know, it is very interesting to see the steps that she goes through at, toward the end there. You know, when, she, when she realizes, when she makes the decision to call Donald Blumgart, 
who, by the way, is voiced by Tony Curtis. I read that. Yeah. She, you know, she calls him because she suspects now, now she's doing the research and she suspects that she's like, I'm, it, I'm just going to find out if he took something of his. And if he didn't, maybe everything is, maybe this is just a crazy thought. Because, so the, because the taking of somebody's possession, possessions allows the coven to curse them or put a spell on them or something like that. Right, exactly. And in the case of her friend Hutch, he came over one day and uh, he he's the one who's putting her on the trail of like, this building has an unsavory history and um, and there were witches in this building and they used to use babies in their in their rituals and suddenly her husband bursts in and then suddenly Hutch's glove is missing and then he goes into a coma the next day and so and dies and and so yes the she starts to investigate this and wants to find out that there's a for those who don't know there's an actor named Donald Blomkart and he's up for a part that Guy is up for. And the first thing that the coven does, I guess, to prove good faith is that Donald Blomgart gets the part instead of Guy, but then Donald Blomgart suddenly goes blind and no one can understand why. And and so then Guy gets the part. And so when when Rosemary makes the decision to call Donald Blomgart and ask him, is it Blomgart or Baumgart? I can't remember now. I but, think it's Baum, um, Baum, Baumgart. It might be Baumgart. Baum, Baumgart. Yeah. I'm not sure. She she calls Donald and she she asks uh, she says, "Oh, you know, he he has something of yours." And then Donald says, "Oh, you mean when we traded ties?" And she puts it together. Mm-hmm. And so then when she just like packs her suitcases and like, "Right, I'm getting out of here." And then she realizes when she goes to Dr. Saperstein that he's in on it and then goes to Dr. Hill who sells her out. But like because, the clever, because he thinks she's having a psychotic break. A psychotic okay. break, exactly. He thinks that she's having a psychotic break. So of course he calls the husband and the respected Abe Saperstein, you know, the the gynecologist. But then you know it's it's the fact that she is she suddenly has agency. She drops all the contents of her purse on the floor, and when the men scramble to pick it up, she leaps into the elevator that's usually operated by an elevator operator. And she takes herself up. She leaps onto the floor because she doesn't quite get the elevator right. She locks herself in the apartment and tries to call her friend, her best friend, Elise. And unfortunately for her, she's a going into labor and B there is a secret passageway, which we find out about really basically in one of the very first scenes um, between the apartments but this, yeah, one of, the, one of the scariest moments, which also it's scary because it's kind of funny in, in the way that Polanski does it is she's on the phone trying to reach her friend who's who's at a movie babysitter answers the phone. And, you know, we clearly see her lock the door, bolt it. She's had a confrontation with with the men at the door and it's like get out of here, leave me alone. And then this movie's all about doorways, right? So like yes. the way that he shoots it through the doorway behind her and she doesn't notice, you see two elderly men like tiptoeing very delicately <laughs> past the yes. doorway. And it's, it's, at, it's at one point like absolutely shocking and terrifying because you're like, oh no. But also like 
two elderly men tiptoeing through an apartment it's, it's is a also very hilarious. funny image. It is. It's, it's that moment of like horror and absurdity, uh, which is which is great. Which is the, but you know, which you put, is what where we're where this scene ends. It's it ends in horror and absurdity. It's it's like it's scary, but it's where also your friends, like, Rosemary. <laughs> I have to say, when I was a kid, um, I don't. I actually don't remember the first time I watched this all the way through. This was the epitome of a film that I appreciated on many levels. However, so much of it went over my head. I don't, did you have that kind of experience? Like, how, like, what? How did you find this movie? Like, how old were you when you when you discovered Rosemary's Baby? The, the film? well, it's very interesting. Because this is actually one of my mother's favorite movies. I mm. feel like that says a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How do you really feel about me, Mom? <laughs> uh, no, but she loved, she also loved Hitchcock. She loved suspense, but she loved Rosemary's Baby. And so I had heard about it, but I don't think I actually saw it. Oh, gosh, I, I honestly can't remember. I I may not have seen it until I was in college mm -hmm. because it was before streaming when you could just watch yeah. something any old time. And, and maybe and, even like I'm not I'm not assuming, you know, age for you, but like maybe even before VHS was available. <laughs> you know, how dare I? <laughs> well, I did notice that you said I read the reissues of PC Comics and I'm like, OK, bitch. We get it. Okay, Junior. Yes, I I've always thought of you as my big sister, like, Lebo. You're my, you're, my, you're my family. You're my big sister. Thank you, darling. Um, yeah, I. so I can't remember when I saw it for the first time. And the first time, of course, it was like, oh, my God. The whole idea of, like, you know, being impregnated with the Antichrist. And maybe it was, like, after I'd seen The Omen, you know, which I do remember seeing. But in subsequent viewings, I, too, have gotten more and more and more out of it. And, of course, I, I watched it this week in preparation for our talk. And in this moment, I felt such rage and despair about the moment that we are in, the fight that we are having, um, to just watch our rights tumbling down like dominoes and to think, oh my God, it's still like this. There are still, they're still talking around us, about us, making decisions about our bodies and our lives. And we are standing there in the baby doll dress going, I don't want to wear the fucking baby doll dress. I want my body and I want my rights. And so it really, it, it, it chilled me to the core this time, and it really, it really hit me in a very different uh, way. And uh, then I went and made a contribution to Planned Parenthood. Um, and you know, I mean, it, it, it did. I will say it. It actually, not to say that I wasn't, I wasn't active in this fight before, but it. Once I got past the, the, the rage and despair, I was like, right. It's time to kick some ass. Yeah. Like, you know, Rosemary at the end. Grab the knife from the kitchen. <laughs> throw the towels on the floor. Yeah. It feels like a kind of fight that 
we've had before in this country, right? Um, oh, yeah. Roe versus Wade in 72, 73, is that? 73 was Roe versus Wade. And then I think I think 72, 73 was also Title IX, which gave oh. girls the right, you know, to gave them the money for sports. Yeah. Um, and which was why by, you know, which was why I got to be um, in 79, I was one of the it was the first time they had a girls cross country team. Hmm. I was in ninth, ninth That's grade, right. 10th grade. You were, yeah, you played. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and I, I felt like that was a being girl sports was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was a confidence builder because you, you learn to work as teammates and you're, you're also going, speaking of bodies, it's like, Holy shit. <laughs> Look what my body can do. This is amazing. You know, I mean, it, that's how it felt in the moment as I remember, yeah. you know, and, and as a teenager, it did give me confidence. Um, but anyway, yes. Yeah, so there were all these, and Billie Jean King defeated Bobby Riggs in like 75 or something like that. So all these things were happening just after this movie came out. And now I look at this and I think, wow. Yeah. And, and the, the way that things swung back, there's always a conservative reaction, right? When, when pro progressives make any kind of move towards what seems to be the right thing to do. like in, in, in my head seems clearly obvious, but then yeah. the eighties come around and we're swinging back in the other direction um, mm -hmm. again. And, and then, we sort of make some progress a little bit in the, I don't even want to say the nineties because the nineties like feels like a, like a weird dream of, of fake <laughs> political <laughs> progress. Yeah. But, um, but you know, like when, when, um, you know, 2008 Obama, we we really felt like things, things on the left were really gelling but I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's about what happened in the 80s after the progress that was made in the 70s. And of course, Rosemary's Baby is taking place in the 60s before all of this. But I, I hear what you're saying about when there are times of great seismic change and you look at... Um, you look at the 60s, which were definitely a period of seismic change... And then we've got the early 70s and uh, the women's liberation movement. And then, of course, you know, we go, we're going down the, the hole of Watergate. But we've also got Vietnam. You've got all this seismic change. And, and what tends to happen is that when there is great change, there are always people who feel threatened by the change and who push back against it. And, and the American obsession, and I know it's not just American, but there's something particular particular about the American obsession with safety and security and, and, and children iron, <laughs> and children, right. Like, like that, that's the embodiment somehow of like, you know, we must save the children. Um, whereas, you know, my father used to say, and, and my father was a diehard Democrat, but he used to say that, um, that Republicans believed uh, in life until conception. And then after that, you're on your own. And, um, but I, I do feel like, so I do feel like there's a particular American fascination with, um, safety and security. And the irony is that of course, uh, everybody also wants to be a millionaire. So they never, it, it's, 
in some ways it's like not paying attention to the fact that like, yes, perhaps if we push back against corporate greed run amok, um, that then we would have the kind, and we had universal health care and Head Start and all of those things and funded, um, you know, programs that actually take care of children and had reasonable housing and all of those things, um, then perhaps you would actually, it wouldn't be a horror story. You would actually have that kind of safety and security. Uh, and so to me, we are in a moment of a, of a horror story right now because we're, you know, I think about the rights that are being pulled back. I think about the 1% getting 1%-er uh, and people going into medical debt just because they need to like have cancer treatment. It is dystopian. A lot of that, you know, a lot of that stuff is sort of telescoped in this film. I feel like, um, mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was looking forward to a time and, 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 and I really think it was the, it was a time when Satanism, that fear of the great evil or, you know, like in how certain stories have been told about certain pizza parlors in Washington, D.C. Oh, recently. And, you know, like Satan, I, I'm not sure if it was as big as a fear at that time, Satanists in, in general at that time, as it sort of became over the next decade. And you, you were talking about earlier, like books and films in the 70s that were filled with devil stuff. And I think Rosemary's Baby really was the precursor to that. It opened the door for The Exorcist. It opened the door for these big, big blockbuster things where people realized that they had a fascination with religious horror. It's funny, like, I... I I don't want to derail a conversation, but I, I did want to mention like how I how I kind of came to this story. You know, yeah, tell me. in the eighties, I was going. I, was, I grew up as Catholic, and my parents put me in CCD. And to mm -hmm. this day, I still couldn't tell you what CCD stands for, but it was catechism catechism class. And I had when I was very young, maybe first or second grade, I had a teacher who I I don't know what her deal was, but kind of cool <laughs> she would bring in these time life books about like ghosts and spirits and like the other the other side and i remember her showing us pictures of haunted houses and if you look in this window here you can see this this face and supposedly the story is there was a little girl who died there and i all of this stuff was coming back to me as i was re-watching this film this week literally memories gone and all of it started coming back to me in that ccd class i don't remember how or why but I think that was the first introduction I got to the Rosemary's Baby poster, um, that famous green image with Rosemary mm -hmm. in profile and in the foreground, this rocky, craggy mountain with a very 60s style perambulator, you know, stroller. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, she brought it in and she probably was wanted to talk about like, the dangers of Satanism, because by that time, you know, the satanic panic was seated well and growing, right? And that was my first introduction to this idea of like Rosemary's baby. What what's the deal with Rosemary's baby? Who's Rosemary? What what why is she worried about her baby? Isn't that like a fun thing? Like for me, it was like 
the very first steps into thinking about motherhood and what a mother could, should do. Like I had very close relationship with my parents and, and didn't really think that other people might've had different experiences. I do remember by the first time I I'd seen this film, it was, I was probably 11 years old. And I specifically remember it was on television. So some of the, the nudity and the sex was toned down were cut out and it was around Halloween time, and my parents had a TV in the basement for us in New Jersey. And I started watching this movie, and my dad came down. And he was like, what are you watching? I was like, I don't know. I think it's something called Rosemary's Baby. And of course, in my mind, I'm, re- I'm remembering that poster, and I'd always wanted to find out what, what was inside of that VHS box. And he was like, I don't want you watching this. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. So I changed the channel. He went back upstairs and I changed the channel back because I was like, <laughs> I am, I have, I have to find out what's going to happen. But for me as a kid, all, like I said, like all of this stuff went over my head in terms of what appealed to me as a kid watching this movie that I probably shouldn't have been watching. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I dis, I disobeyed my father. Um, so he was probably smart enough to say, no, nah, I don't watch that and then think that I was going to listen. But I think the things that stuck out to me, like appealed to me as a kid, was the idea of the secret passage um, yeah. at the end of the hallway. I've always been fascinated by secret passages. The chanting that the that Rosemary and Guy hear through the walls, I was like, that was <gasps> creepy. That is one of the creepiest moments to me, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like... You know, it's the it's it's a it's a New York nightmare. Having lived in close proximity in New York City mm-hmm. apartments, you can hear your neighbors. And like, if I'd ever heard that, I probably would have gone running. There was the 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 <laughs> image of the devil eyes. You know, um, when she's she looks up and she's like, "This isn't a dream. This is really happening." There was the the that massive, incredibly gothic cradle at the very end, shrouded oh, in those, yeah. that black fabric. These are the things that stuck out in my childhood brain. It really made me remember this movie and where all the other stuff sort of was like floating around my head. These ideas that I didn't even comprehend at the time. One other thing that really stuck out was Rosemary's panic. Um, Mia Farrow's performance is so incredible in this movie. Like she really brings this element of like, I think it was the first time I I understood the word paranoia, but also it wasn't paranoia because it was real. The dangers were real, or at Mm -hmm. least it felt like that. It felt like that maybe because the perspective we were seeing was that um, so tight to Rosemary's POV. Right. But I also remember Ruth Gordon, Right, this character. He chose many... you out of all the women in the world. Out of all the women in the world, he chose you to be the mother. <laughs> you drink it. It's just plain old lipstick. Like as a child, I love her so much. Watching Ruth Gordon, I instantly formed a bond with with, <laughs> with her with her idea, the idea of her, the spirit of Ruth Gordon, and and the shocking and I think very scary thing about that character to me is as it was revealed. You know, she's this colorful, like, fashion plate, like, purple hair, very bright makeup. And at the end, like, she is a Satanist. She's worshiping Satan. I was like, that could have been my grandmother. I was like, that's Mm -hmm. that as a child was what scared me. And the other thing was the husband. The idea that 
the man of the household, the family, could be having one pulled over on them. And I I think I looked at my dad a little differently after I watched that movie. I was like, <laughs> what secrets do you have? You know, you, I know you go to work every day, but like, what are you doing there? It really affected me. And, and I, I'm sorry I'm going on and on, but like, I have just one more thing I want to, I want to talk about just because in terms of, of our first fears and childhood fears, like I remember a nightmare and this, this is another thing that came back to me as I was watching the film. I know a lot of people don't like hearing other people's dreams, but like, this is pertinent. I remember having this dream that I was walking through an apartment building with tight hallways that curb that, that sort of jutted left and right and left and right. And the light in the hallway was red. And in each corner that the hallway turned, there was somebody just standing there looking at me. And I get into this bigger apartment and like sort of feel relief. It feels like, oh, this feels like a little bit more homey. It feels a little bit more safe. And I'm looking out the window and across the street, I can see kind of rear window style i can see everybody in in their win in their apartments across the street doing various things and then there's this jolt of music or, or light and every single person in the in the building across the street turns and looks at me and i think that that dream came from watching this movie like i i i think that the ideas of of the hallways and the in the like the paranoia that Mia Farrow's character, Rosemary, feels, it sort of got in my head and it really, really freaked me out. Um, so as like as a kid, like these like it's it's interesting to see what what these bigger, scarier, capital H horror movies can can do and the effect that they can have on you. And and I'm not sure how that how that affected me as I, as I grew up. It was like one nightmare and that was fine. But yeah, that was my experience with with Rosemary's baby. Well, I, I, of course, would be very curious to know what you had been feeling when you went to sleep, what had happened that day, like what, when you reflect upon the dream, are you able to see, uh, I find dreams fascinating and, and I'm a very vivid dreamer as well. And I, I wonder actually if a lot of people who love horror and write horror are vivid dreamers and I would be curious to know like what it represents to you. Like when you look at it, I have a recurring serial killer dream and I can, Mm. I can, I'll tell you about it in a minute, but I, I, I wonder if you can look at that dream and look at it, look at the intersection with Rosemary's baby, but also what, what they bring up for you, each Mm. one, the dream and the movie. If I were to think about it, I probably was starting to question my sexuality at the time. Mm. And Gotcha. The paranoia of the church's judgment, you know, uh, a parish of, of a congregation of people who at any time could turn, look at you with judgment or hate. I think, like, I'd, I'd never considered that before, but thank you for helping me analyze this moment because, um, yeah, it, it definitely was attached to the sort of the the Catholic religious horror of Rosemary's Baby and sort of the my own sort of coming to grips with the teachings that I had been given throughout my childhood that that I no longer you know subscribe to. It's it's interesting because I could see how that movie uh, could absolutely 
be a psychological representation because here are these kindly people. It's, it's, it's like a fellowship, right? You know, they're your neighbors. They're looking out for you, but they could also sacrifice you to the devil. And in a way, uh, being sort of like Rosemary being sort of naive and trusting and then realizing that these, that this is not going to gel with who you need to be in order to take care of yourself. That, that you know, I could, I could absolutely, that, that it feels like something you want to believe in and also that it's a, a potential threat mm-hmm. to who you are as a human. And then there's also all of the stuff about wrestling with faith. And I think for many of us who grew up, who grew up religious and I, my father was a minister. He was also gay. He came out later in life. Um, so there were secrets he was keeping. Um, and of course the church was not, would not be accepting of that. And so it was a secret I had to keep as well once I became a teenager, um, which certainly colored my views on, on the church, not necessarily spirituality, but the church is an institution, which is run by people, which is people are flawed. Um, but I think for those of us who grow up in the church and who begin to question certain aspects of the teaching, that's a scary moment too, because it, it feels, it feels quite threatening, you know, like, Oh my God, what am I, if I, renounce this teaching, what am I renouncing and what am I risking? And so the, the moment where, where they're at dinner and Roman is talking about how, about the Pope coming oh, to early New York. On it, early on in the film. Yeah. 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 And that it's like, you know, it's just showbiz that it's, that it's pageantry and Rosemary is visibly upset. And many says, Oh, I think we're upsetting Rosemary. And she's like, well, I was raised Catholic and she's like, well, now I'm not sure. And all she says is, well, but he is the Pope. And so it's that <laughs> caught between like, she's like, I don't know that I'm, I'm estranged from obviously from my family and I'm not going to church. I mean, she, we never see her go to church. She's not wearing any religious iconography. She's not wearing a cross. There's, there's no evidence of that. It just seems very secular, but she can't quite let go. Like, well, he is the Pope. And then, of course, the famous scene when she's sitting in the doctor's office and the cover of Time magazine, which was an actual cover, says, is God dead? And I, I think that, you know, again, it gets down to and, and, and I could certainly understand why, you know, when you think about now things happen so much faster in our Internet age, but it used to be that things took a little while for people to really reflect on. And you think, okay, this is 68. So it's been, you know, 20 plus years since the end of World War II. There's been the Cold War and McCarthyism and the Vietnam War is raging. And for the first time ever, those images are being, you know, flashed on our nightly TV screens because that was, that didn't happen before. But now it was happening and people could see what was what was happening. You know, they could see they could see the horror of it. All of those things combined with, I think, sort of the with the space race, because I was a little kid. I was five when um, when they landed on the moon and we were fascinated with astronauts. But suddenly 
we're going into space, which was this thing that was just abstract. And now we are like gods. We are like Prometheus. You know, we, we, we bring fire into space. Um, and I could see how all of those things and, and then of course also, and, and the pill, there is a sense of like, well, we can go into space. We can, we can control our reproductive cycles. Uh, we don't these need horrors, God anymore. <laughs> right. These horrors <laughs> happened and God didn't step in. Right. God right. let it happen. Um, yeah. So, so opposite, I, opposite sides of the same coin. Yeah. We yeah. don't need God, but also God isn't there for us. <laughs> yeah. And oh God, we want to cling to God. Because, yeah. I mean, and what does Rosemary say at the very end when she realizes oh it? Oh, God. Oh, God. And the, the, the woman's like response, her response, yeah. do you remember? Shut, yes. up, shut up about your God or we'll kill you even though you we still no need milk. your milk. <laughs> milk or no milk will kill you. I know. Laura Louise, man. fire. <laughs> but it also evokes, I mean, Rosemary saying, Oh God, oh God, you might as well finish that sentence. Why hast thou forsaken me? Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's almost a Jesus moment, mm-hmm. you know. It's the same line that um, the 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 inspector, the detective from the Wicker Man says at the end of <gasps> yes! the Wicker Man. It's the same line. Oh God, oh God. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't, you know, seen it. But again, what, 50 years ago, something but yeah, it's, but that, by it, the way, and, and is, again, it's it's religious, you know, religious sort of horrors. Even even though God hasn't really played a role necessarily in Rosemary's character throughout this movie, it's all of a sudden like you're you're confronted with a great mystery, and he's there again, and you're asking for help. <laughs> yes, you know, and and it's 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 interesting that you brought up Wicker Man, which is also a movie I dearly love. I, I love folk horror, and I feel like in many ways uh, you could look at Ari Aster's Midsummer, absolutely on a line yeah. with Rosemary's Baby and the Stepford Wives, and um, and except that uh, you know, at the uh, at the end of Midsummer, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very different kind of ending. Yeah. Um, but I, mean, I feel in, in like a way, in a, in a way. In a way, like um, the end of at the end of Midsummer, Florence Pugh's character kind of comes to an acceptance as well, just like Rosemary mm-hmm. does. Yes. So there's some. Yes. There are similar. There are similar in a way. Um, yeah. But definitely the the Wicker Man connection to Midsummer as well. It's it's you know, it's a folk it's a folk horror thing. And yeah. I wonder I wonder if I wonder if in a way, Rosemary's Baby could be considered folk horror just despite the fact that it's a new that's an it's an urban horror it's taking place in new york city there's a lot of folk horror elements to it the tannis route the 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 secret witches who live next door no i don't want to call them witches because i know i know real witches and they don't don't necessarily follow this movie witches movie witches (laughs) yeah um yeah and and i think also um I mean, you can't talk about, you know, she has that, that book, all of them witches, you know, all of the, and you all can't witches, think about yeah. all of them witches the and pieces. not think about, yes, oh my God, this, that is one of my favorite scenes too. Iconic image, yeah. So good. Um, but you, you, you can't think about that, of course, without thinking about Salem in our history, another mm. moment of satanic panic mm-hmm. involving women. 
and it's and the patriarchy. Oh my God, and so just keeps in a way, back it, it, yeah, it is. Well, I always say history is a is a hydra, you know. <laughs> Cut and, off uh, the head, two more. And, and there's yeah, exactly. It's like oh, that's connected to that. Connected to that. To the thigh bone. Um, but it's it's also, you know, that takes it into folk horror because we're we're hearkening to a past. But I, I, and I think even the idea of trying to hold on to the old ways. I mean, you mm. know, which is always when we think about one of the things I, that I'm always fascinated by with folk horror is that it's, it's usually about people threatened by change, trying to hold on to the old ways. Mm. And, um, you know what? I, I was thinking about that too, because in a way, Rosemary's baby sort of turns that idea on its head in. in yes. In you're that, right. You know, Rosemary sees the neighbor Roman Castavet, the elderly man who's married to Ruth Gordon, and she sees that his ear is pierced. And she mm-hmm. that really strikes her. And I'm like, that kind of is like a counterculture thing, right? And in the in the late sixties, like that was a that was a big thing. And and I'm like, are we saying like the counterculture was usually younger people trying to make change, right? And she's seeing evidence of a counterculture maybe that once upon a time existed maybe maybe the old ways were the counterculture at one time i I don't know it's an idea that i haven't really fully fleshed out but it was something that i thought about when i I rewatched the film last night it is fascinating to think about because in many ways she and guy are not really about they're not part of the counterculture and they're not about change they're part of the bourgeoisie (laughs) i mean that apartment, I admit, when, when they go in and start transforming that apartment in the Dakota, I was like, house porn, you know. <laughs> but it's, they are about, um, you know, wanting to have their piece of the pie and um, the, the record on the hi-fi and the, the nice couch. So there's a lot about sort of just the consumerism and, you know, the, they're, they're not counterculture. And no. it's 68, yeah. you know? So it, it is kind of interesting to think about that because, yeah, you're right. It's, it's the uh, elderly neighbors next door <laughs> who are like the outliers. Yeah, it's an interesting turn. And, and, you know, like I feel like we can't talk about Rosemary's Baby with, without sort of going into what happened the next year in Polanski's personal life. Yes, with the horrible crimes of, of the Manson family and, and what happened to his wife and his, his unborn child and, and a lot of their friends. Like, it's almost like eerie. I mean, I, I don't I, like prescient. It's like whatever. Yes. Happened, it was like, it makes, it makes a, an argument for like the cursed movie trope, right? Like, yeah, like, this, you know, did this story sort of put him on their radar or something? I don't, I don't know. It's, it's so, I, I, I agree. You know, like I saw a picture not long ago of Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate on set for Rosemary's Baby, and it, it really kind of, it was jarring because, yeah, how can you not think about what is to come? And 69 in general, between uh, you know, there's Manson and, and LaBianca La murders and Altamont. And, and of course, 68 is the Tet Offensive, which is, uh, you know, so it, it, it just feels like uh, we've gone from 67 Summer of Love to 
you know, to God is dead. <laughs> to God is dead. Exactly. Yeah. So, so in many ways, you're right. This movie, I, I mean, you know, it feels horribly prescient in terms of Polanski's own personal tragedy, but it, it also feels like it is, it's got its finger on the thrumming pulse of what is happening and what is to come in the country. Yeah. Speaking of what is to come in the country, I want to sort of end on a happier note, maybe, maybe <laughs> not a happier note, but, but talk, let's talk about you, Libba. Um, so I, you know, having lived in New York city for nearly 20 years from 99 to the late teens, um, I, I, whenever I would go up to the Upper West Side, it always kind of felt haunted to me. And I think, mm-hmm. I think the Dakota had something to do with that. Some of the other pre-war buildings, the Ansonia um, on 73rd and Broadway is another kind of very tall, very gothic looking apartment building that was the location of single white female. I don't know oh, if you ever God. saw that one. That's where here, they were. buddy. Come That's... here, buddy. Sorry, I just love Jennifer to say that Jason line. Lee. Um but oh. you, you know, you have you have written a series or uh several years back called The Diviners. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that takes place on the Upper West Side. Do you feel like maybe Rosemary's baby the, these kind of creepy buildings that, was there any kind of influence uh new york city influence on the story of the diviners quartet absolutely and, and on um the Gemma doyle trilogy as well oh yeah so yeah. um yes the the bramford aka the dakota was absolutely uh an influence on um the apartment building that uh that um, Evie and her uncle live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to have that kind of creepy gothic vibe, and of course, you've got the um, you've got the the sisters upstairs, the oh, elderly the sisters. sisters. Which at the and, end of book one, you do something with them that just made my skin crawl. <laughs> speaking <laughs> speaking of you know Why, putting an, you. putting an animal in a scene and then making me worry mm-hmm. about them, mm-hmm. but but yeah, and I definitely thought about. I thought about everything from the Trench sisters who were referenced in um, Rosemary's Baby uh, to, to you know, Ruth Gordon. I, I thought about those sisters and, like, I absolutely want them to be these, you know, older women who scare you a bit. What's what's the deal with them? And, uh, and then also uh, thinking about the Museum of Natural History, which is also a favorite building in New York, and um, and the I don't know if you've ever been to the this is not on the Upper West Side but the Morgan Library oh, that's yeah. on Madison around 37th Street. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought about that as an influence on the the, muse, the the Museum of Creepy Crawlies. Oh yeah. But that scene with the Scrabble letters where Rosemary is trying that where Hutch has said the name is an anagram and she's trying to work it out and then she does. I was fascinated with anagrams ever after. I was just like, I would always try to work out an anagram for something. And so in the Gemma Doyle trilogy, yep. the second book, yep. they have to um, Genius. figure out who somebody is. <laughs> and I was like, anagram, anagram. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like Incredible. 
And also, I think the idea of is she or isn't she, you know, that that paranoia. I, I mean, for me, it's impossible not to see Rosemary's baby and be like, yes, this is as she said, this is no dream. This is really happening. But there are I have no idea what it was like when it was received when it first came out. But I could see how there could be people being like, uh, you know, no, it's the pregnancy doing this to her, you know. So always leaving a certain amount of ambiguity, like, is this really happening? Is this not really happening until like, oh, no, it, it would appear that this is actually really happening. So keeping that that sense of um, willing suspension of disbelief, maybe. But also, like, I also love a slow burn. I am not this is a slow burn. This is a slow burn. It's a it's that's this movie's like what two hours and twenty minutes or something like that. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like it. And the naturalistic sense of just like, oh, now we're now we're making coffee. Now we're looking through a recipe book. Now we're, you know, having a, a, a sort of argument between husband and wife that could be about any number of things. But it's like a drop, drop drop it's like the the water just keeps filling up the bucket until, until it gets to your nostrils yes. and all of a sudden you can't breathe and i love that in a horror movie i do not like you know when something just is like bam right out of the gate you know i think about something like and, and I'll, I'll pull up uh ariaster again with heredity that's also a slow burn mm-hmm. until you get to the middle of the movie where something so horrible happens and you think about it in Rosemary's baby, it's the middle of the movie where she's impregnated by the devil. So it's like, you know, you hit this peak and you're like, wait, what? And then, you know, that's where things just start to really ratchet up. But I, I love a slow burn, man. It's funny to think about that in terms of a, of a child, audience coming to find this movie like however however um you know (laughs) however misbehaved we were watching it like (laughs) secretly or whatever but i'm kind of surprised that i had the wherewithal to sit down and watch this at age 11 or 12 or whenever it was because it doesn't have the jump scares that i know kids love um i talk about i talk about jump scares versus you know slower creeping eeriness in terms of when when i'm talking with kids at schools and libraries or whatever and i'm like which which do you like better and they're always like jump scares but for me there's something about this movie and i you know i listed the things that like appealed to me earlier but um but a slow burn for a kid i wonder i wonder if that's if that works, is that a thing that I, can happen? I that wonder, I mean, appeal to, that appeals to them. I, I mean, I even wonder if it, if it appeals to, um, to an adult audience now, you know, I, right. th- because our attention spans have gotten so much shorter, Yeah. but I still feel like for me, when it comes to horror, you know, I want them to build it. I need to be sort of, I, I, I want to get, progressively more anxious you know and, and you're um, very you're and, very good at that i mean oh, you're, thank you're, you. your books are, are you oh well thanks your books are are long they're epic and you give yourself space to drop the hints like water in a bucket slowly over time i think that's definitely something that you are very very good at thank you i 
I, I think one of the other things that I just want to mention about horror, and I, I'm curious to see what how you feel about this, but I think that an element of horror that is overlooked is sorrow and grief. Mm. There, like there's something that is being lost, and I feel like I need to have time to really, you know, there needs to be emotional stakes. I need to care about those characters in order for me to care that they're in danger. Hmm. And, um, and I think about how much horror, like, um, don't look now is an excellent example of horror with grief, you know, family who lost their daughter. Yeah. Yes. And that the, 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 the sense of that is palpable and somehow makes the scarier stuff, it makes the scary stuff scarier to me um, because yeah. there is that undercurrent of, of loss and it reminds us that um, I mean, not to be, not to be morose, but it reminds us that in the end we do lose everything mm-hmm. we lose because we have an expiration date. Mm-hmm. And in some ways horror allows us to grapple with our fears about our mortality. Yeah. And I think, I think that is something that that kids can start to learn, understand, like even yeah. even on their own, you know, like I just saw the new Barbie movie and, you know, she like the the basically the the turning point for her at the very beginning of the movie is like, do you guys ever think about death? You know, <laughs> I'm like, oh my god. This is, this is I want not, to party with her. This is not the Barbie movie I thought I was signing up for, but give me more, oh. Greta Gerwig. You should have played Barbies with me back in the day. <laughs> yes. And now we go but into the haunted why, castle. That's what I'm talking about. Like kids reach that, kids sort of understand that sort of in, inherently, whether or not they are shown it in a story or, you know, just thinking about, their lives or seeing yes. how things progress for the adults in their lives and losing family members or, you know, it's, it's, I agree. It's, it's an important part of not only horror, but it's an important part of learning what it is to be human. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I lament that we overschedule children now and that we're also that it seems like everything is results and, and, and upward mobility. You got to accomplish this task and this task, and you got to do this and play this sport and, you know, all that kind of stuff, because really the value of boredom and play, which allows your imagination to, to fly and to, and to work through in play a lot of these, uh, you know, underlying, um, Fears and anxieties, I always said that horror is wonderful for anxious children because it allows us to project our fears onto an actual monster that can be, you know, perhaps fought. And, um, and, but also I feel like as writers, that's our, that's our job too, is to play. It's not just about, well, let me hit this mark and see if this is, I mean, yes, we'd all like to keep the lights on and, and eat food. And I would, appreciated if I'm not living under the carnival ride, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with 18 feral cats drinking my own urine to survive. But <laughs> no, that's not why I write stories. <laughs> it's, it's, it is also a form of play that allows me to dive into what it is to be human. Hmm. I love and that. To make sense of this world. Well, listen, I've kept you 
much longer than I than I meant to, but I was just really That's loving so loving oh where God. this conversation went, and I so appreciate you taking the time. Do you have? Do you want to like to finish? Do you want to tell people about anything that you have coming up, or you know, or do you want to just leave it at the? You the mean like part? lunch? Um. <laughs> like 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 yeah, like, like book wise or work wise, yeah, Mus- musical um, vampires wise. Gosh. Work-wise, you know, I like to work on lots of different projects at once. Um, And so I will say the three things um, that are kind of at the forefront. uh, One is the vampire movie musical, exclamation mark, that I just uh, mentioned earlier at the top. And um, so writing, uh, I've written written and recorded um, 12 of the songs and I'm writing the the script right now. So um, there's that. And then there is a book that's coming out next year next fall um that's all about love and resistance it has a working title <laughs> the working title is either under the same stars or love and resistance oh, um, okay so I, i'm not sure but it's coming out next fall. i like both and... of them i mean i think they're both thank are you. very appealing yeah, um, thank you i'm looking forward to both of those projects and thank you. um you know well, until thanks for next having time me, Dan. yeah i also I, Let's get together over dinner sometime and talk folk horror because yeah. that sounds like a fabulous dinner conversation. Absolutely. I'll be And I'll, we'll just terrify all of our, our neighboring patrons. Where we'll be at the restaurant and they'll be like, those people scare us. That's what I like to do in restaurants. So I think that yeah. sounds like a great date. Well we'll have a booth to ourselves. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much, Liva. Thank you. This was fun, Dan. Many thanks to Libba Bray once more for suggesting this incredible film and for taking the time to rant with me about it. I loved this conversation, and I could have kept going and going. If you haven't seen Rosemary's Baby, sorry for spoiling the whole thing, but also check it out ASAP. It truly is a classic. A fun fact before we go, one thing Libba and I never got into is that Ira Levin was a self-proclaimed atheist. In his own words, He didn't even believe in the devil. And yet, the impact of his work on pop culture and culture in general is undeniable. Anyway, thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Our First Fears wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like, you can follow our social media at Our First Fears, one word, on the site formerly known as Twitter, as well as on Instagram. You can also reach out at OurFirstFears at gmail.com. If you do want to get in touch, let me know. What would you do if you found out your spouse had sold you out to Satanists? Hmm? Thanks again for your precious time. I'm Dan Poblocki, wishing you sweet dreams and pleasant nightmares.